following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we are up to the third part of our series, God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty, and I've entitled today's message, Privileged Planet. Just to give you a bit of a heads up, we're talking about cosmology again today, but next week I'm going to look at my specialist field at university, which is history. And we're going to look at the influence of Christianity over the last 2,000 years and its benefits towards humankind and modern civilization. You don't want to miss it. But today I'm going to continue on this theme of cosmology. In 1966, Time magazine ran a front page article in which they asked this question, which is where the kind of main theme for the series comes from, Is God Dead? was emblazoned on the cover of Time magazine. A pretty provocative question, is God dead? And the reason Time magazine was asking this in the 1960s was because there was this rising cultural narrative, the story that was being promulgated through the media, the press, and through popular culture, that God and his church were outmoded old-fashioned, medieval, and were from the past and had no place in the current age. And Time magazine said, is God dead? In that same year, Carl Sagan, cosmologist, astronomer, and popularizer of science, he appeared in Time magazine in an article in which he made this incredible statement. He said that for life For a life-permitting planet to exist, a planet like Earth to exist, it just required two things. The first thing it required was it be the right distance from a sun so that you could have liquid water. That is the basic requirement for life as we know it, liquid water. And that it be circling or orbiting the right type of sun. So just two parameters were required for life. In 1966, according to Carl Sagan, astronomer. But then, ladies and gentlemen, science started to overturn this view. You see, our Earth, which you can see presently up on the screen behind me, doesn't just have two parameters that have to be met to support life. You see, when Carl Sagan said that, astronomers did calculations and they worked out if that was true that there were only two parameters required for a life-permitting planet like the beautiful blue and white orb of earth to exist with complex life on it just two parameters there would be a hundred a hundred billion of these planets just in four sorry, I should say 40 billion such planets in our own milky way galaxy 40 billion of them and this led people to coin a principle known as the mediocrity principle. That is that life in the universe and in the Milky Way galaxy is supremely um, common. The mediocrity principle. In other words, Earth is just a mediocre planet. There are just so many Earths out there. And guess what that means, ladies and gentlemen? It means that E.T. is real. (laughs) E.T., phone home. You know, E.T., phone home. Close encounters of the third kind is real. Aliens, alien, aliens, alien three, alien resurrection, alien versus predator. 
All of this stuff, ladies and gentlemen, the universe and our galaxy is just teeming with life. Star Wars, Star Trek. Now, all of these shows and films all arose after Carl Sagan had made this statement. This is no coincidence. This idea of science, I love science fiction. It's one of my favorite genres to read. But do you realize that it's, all of that arose out of this idea that, the, that life would be very, very common across just even our own Milky Way galaxy? And then science came along and ruined it all. Now, Hollywood has never caught up with this because aliens are just too popular. I mean, I love aliens. The cantina scene from Star Wars. I mean, you can't get much better than that, ladies and gentlemen. It just is intriguing to us. But here's what science has discovered, that there are more than two parameters. There's not five. There's not 10. There's not 15. Before you know it, they were up to about 50 and 60 parameters required for a planet like ours that permits complex life. 50 to 60. And they all have to be in existence simultaneously for a life-permitting planet to occur, to survive, for us to be there, multicellular life, intelligent life. Although the American presidential campaign would suggest not all life is intelligent necessarily on earth. Am I allowed to say that, ladies and gentlemen? I don't know if I am. I apologize for that. But I just sort of thought I'd throw that out there. I'm feeling a little bit whimsical today, so we'll, we'll just put a lid on it, Adam, before you get yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah. that, means, that means that the Milky Way galaxy, in other words, these 40, million pla 40 billion planets, they are now suddenly reduced. 40 million planets are reduced all the way down. Once you start adding in more parameters, the chance of getting one of these planets falls. And I want to look at some of these parameters. The first thing that Carl Sagan didn't seem to realize is that the universe is all, he knew, he knew this, but didn't realize the implications of it, but there are all kinds of different galaxies within our universe. And we're going to look at some of these. They fall into three broad categories. They are spiral, elliptical, and irregular galaxies. Now, if we just consider these one at a time, not all galaxies are great for supporting life. You might not be aware of that. Our elliptical galaxies, which you can see behind me, are kind of egg-shaped and squashed. The real problem with elliptical galaxies is that the stars travel through virtually every region of that galaxy. That is not the same with the Milky Way galaxy. Our sun will never travel through the center of our galaxy. That's because we're in a beautiful pinwheel kind of celestial galaxy, um, spiral galaxy that doesn't permit that. But in one of these types of galaxies, it's like a, a beehive with all the bees moving around the hive. And this means that the stars will at some point all travel through the center, which has a black hole. And I'm going to talk more about this, but black holes are not conducive to life, ladies and gentlemen. More on on this soon. Second, our irregular galaxies. These are even worse than elliptical galaxies. That's because they are ripped apart and there's really no kind of safe place in this type of galaxy for a life-permitting planet like our beautiful blue orb. The third type of galaxy, and this is my favorite because it's my hometown, it is the spiral galaxy. It is gorgeous like our own Milky Way, and we saw last week, we looked at Andromeda, which is also a stunning galaxy. Um, we have a central spherical bulge, very bright, and a, and a disk of spiral arms extending outwards like a big celestial pinwheel. Now, unfortunately, these galaxies are quite rare. Most of the universe is made up of those elliptical and irregular galaxies. 
A feature of our galaxy is that it falls into one of the, um, in, the one and two percent of the most massive galaxies in the known universe. So in that sense, it's kind of rare. It's one to two percent of all those mass of those massive galaxies that exist within the universe. Now this is important. You've probably never thought about this. It's because that these Lower mass galaxies lack, scientists tell us, the building blocks for life. That's why they call entire galaxies kind of dead zones in which you will, some astronomers believe you'll never find any life-permitting planet. Why? Because they have such a low mass, they just don't have the elements in them required for life. For example, helium, oxygen, hydrogen. And of course, what you and I have a lot of, and that is carbon. You've probably heard of this. You're a carbon-based life form. Carbon is in such small quantities in these irregular and elliptical galaxies that there's just no way you're going to get carbon-based life forms or supporting life that you have here in a galaxy with a very big mass like our own Milky Way galaxy. Think about this. What is carbon useful for? Carbon provides a whole lot of life processes. You can see up in here, it gives us proteins. These are the building blocks of life. Nucleic acids, what do they do? They are used in the DNA for storing information. Ladies and gentlemen, get rid of carbon and you don't have the building blocks for life, you don't have DNA, you don't have information, you don't have multicellular life. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Consequently, as I've already said, some astronomers believe that these low-mass galaxies, which make up the vast bulk of the galaxies within the universe, don't have a single Earth-type planet amongst them. The high-mass galaxies like ours are relatively rare for creating that great circle of life we love so much from the Lion King, ladies and gentlemen. Think about it. Do you want to be in a galaxy in which there's no Pumba, Simba, Nala, Akuna Matata? I'm telling you what, there's no way I'm going to an irregular elliptical galaxy, man, because there's just no Lion King happening. I want to stay in a beautiful high-mass, gorgeous celestial pinwheel like the Milky Way galaxy. This brings me, not only does it have to be the right type of galaxy, you have to be in the right place in the galaxy because although our galaxy looks gorgeous, it actually has some areas that are extremely, extremely dangerous. Let's have a look at this. Let's have a big picture of our location within this, or just our galaxy for a start. If you look at the outer perimeter of the Milky Way, by the way, this is not a selfie taken by the galaxy itself. We haven't traveled far enough at all to be able to do this sort of thing, ladies and gentlemen, and probably never, ever will. This is an artist's representation of what they think our galaxy might look like, kind of plan view looking down on this great disk. But on the outer perimeter is really not life permitting because, again, it's a very low mass area and is lacking things like carbon in the quantities required for a life permitting planet. And if you look at the center, which looks like a gorgeous place to go to, so bright and shiny, don't go there, ladies and gentlemen. That's a moth to a flame. That's the place where you go to die. Why? Because there's a massive black hole there, and it's jam-packed with neutron stars. And do you know what black holes and neutron stars do to multicellular life like us? They eat us for breakfast. They emit x-rays and gamma rays, and they just are absolutely corrosive to 
our bodies and the life we experience on this planet. So we, we're not found at the outer perimeter. We're not found at the core. You just couldn't, we wouldn't survive, ladies and gentlemen. There are also other places in our galaxy which are extremely dangerous. See those massive spiral arms? The reason they're so bright is because they're densely packed with stars, kind of like globular clusters. Sounds like a cool name. I don't know who the astronomer was that came up with this. But a globular cluster is an area in our galaxy outside of the spiral arms in which there are large numbers of stars. Let's have a look at one of these. It's, it's fantastic. Can you see that there, ladies and gentlemen? This beautiful globular cluster. Now, that cluster, if we, look at, if we take Earth and we took a 13-light-year perimeter around Earth, which is a considerable distance, 13 light years, by the way, it takes 500 seconds from light to get to the sun to planet Earth. So 15 light years is, um, 13, 13 light years is a long, uh, a great distance. But that 13 light years, in a globular cluster, there are thousands of stars. Around Earth, there are only 23 in the same area. So we are in an area that is not densely packed with stars. By the way, if our planet was in a globular cluster or in a spiral arm, there would be no night nighttime, ladies and gentlemen. It would just be too bright for us. Um, what did I want to say about this? And the reason why it's dangerous to be in a globular cluster or a spiral arm is pretty much the same reason it's dangerous to be at the core of our universe. There's just such a greater chance of something bad happening. In a globular cluster, so many stars compacted together, we've got 23 close to us, a globular cluster, it would be thousands. It would mean that the, the orbit of our, and believe it or not, our sun orbits the core of the Milky Way galaxy, the orbit would be too irregular and would be destructive to us. On top of that, we would be prone to being affected by our next picture, which although it looks beautiful, is extremely dangerous. It's the gaseous after effects of a supernova, which is an exploding star. Now they look pretty, ladies and gentlemen, but they are extremely dangerous. Let's see what happens. So it's extremely dangerous to be in one of these systems. The chances of surviving are very, very low. Thank you, Bruce. So you not only have to be, and let's look at where we are in our galaxy, Nathaniel. Let's put this up here. My son will put this up. Where do we find ourselves in? If we're not in the outer rim, we're not at the center, we're not in an arm, we find ourselves perfectly positioned in a low-density area perfect for long-term survival, ladies and gentlemen. It almost seems like someone divinely placed us there. Right type of galaxy, right location within that galaxy. The other thing we have to have as a, li a life-permitting parameter is our sun. Now, Carl Sagan was right about this, but we know so much more about our sun than we knew in the 1960s. You see, our sun is a very, very... Um, consistent and um, life-permitting type of sun. Commonly, people believe that our sun is very typical across the Milky Way galaxy. That's actually not the case. 95% of all other stars in the Milky Way galaxy have less mass than our sun. I'll say that again. 95% of all the stars in our galaxy have less mass than our sun. And the ones that do are way too big 
too bright and emit all kinds of terrible light that are corrosive to us. Let's have a look at the dog star, one of the brightest stars in the night sky from even here in, um, on planet Earth. And this is Sirius. It's actually a binary star system. But you see how bright Sirius is there. The problem with Sirius is not only is it very big, but it emits nearly all its light or energy as ultraviolet, ultraviolet. Now, I think you know that you need your UV sunglasses, you need your UV sunblock. Imagine if we were orbiting a star like Sirius, how much sunblock you would have to be wearing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, you would have to be just pancaked with this stuff. It just wouldn't happen. Our Earth and is bathed with a sun that just emits 10% of its light as ultraviolet, so it has to be just right. We also know that the most common stars in the Milky Way are about 10% the mass of our sun. Let's have a look at this. And a lot of them are what we call red dwarfs. You can see them here. They make up about 85% of the stars within the Milky Way galaxy. Now, this is a real problem. And you've probably noticed in recent times, people have been talking about stars that are close to our own, and there are kind of Earth-like planets there. The very first question you should ask yourself when, when that comes up in the media and the media is terrible with this because they don't have many science journalists who are trained in science, is the immediate question you should ask is, what type of sun is it? Because it's invariably going to be one of these red dwarfs. Now, the problem with a red dwarf the sun is this, is that to get liquid water, you have to be, your planet has to be so much closer to that sun than it does with our own sun. And what that means is the gravitational pull of the red dwarf actually slows the rotation of that orbiting planet. So this is what happens with Earth when it goes around the sun over 365 days. It goes like this, round and round. But when you put, if Earth was closer to the sun, that orbit, our rotation on our axis, would slow down until we were what they call in a synchronistic rotation. Next, you know, if you, people ask you what you were talking about at church on Sunday, we were talking about synchronistic rotations around red dwarfs. And they say, what kind of crazy church are you going to? And you just say, sure, community. And they'll go, it figures. And, and so what happens is that as it slows down, it means that instead of it rotating and that planet showing all its faces to the sun, it becomes tidally locked until just one face is looking at the sun. Our moon is tidally locked. Have you ever thought about that? We only ever see one side of it because it's proximity to Earth, and it means we just see... Now, that's not a big deal with the moon, although I'd be, I'm curious about the other side. But it's called the dark side of the moon, but that's a misnomer, ladies and gentlemen. It's just because we can't, we can't see it from where we are. But what that means is if it's a, sun, a planet orbiting a sun, is that one side of the planet fries and the other side freezes. It's not a good situation. I think you can see that, can't you? That we're blessed on a planet that actually rotates. Imagine if just one side was getting really super, super hot and the other side, we were freezing. That's why we live in Auckland, not Dunedin. Okay, so <laughs> I'm a mainlander, ladies and gentlemen, so I can say that. Let's have a look at the other thing that happens with these red dwarfs, which they never really tell you about in the Herald article, which they've just pinched from another news site anyway because they've got so low staff now. Um, you know it's true. You know it's true, our news is getting worse and worse because instead of actually having journalists on the ground doing stuff, they're now just sourcing all this material from overseas. 
it's an absolute tragedy. If you expect democracy to prosper in that type of environment, you are sorely mistaken. And see, photosynthesis here, we've got this beautiful sun, but you know photosynthesis takes sun energy or light energy, it turns it into chemical energy, and then you take it from the garden and you eat it, and it turns, and then you get this all kind of muscular energy going on in your body, and you're able to do stuff. Do you know what happens if you took our plants and you put them on a planet going around a red dwarf? It's only getting light in the red spectrum, and photosynthesis needs blue and red light. Our planet uh, is blessed by having a sun that gives us light, both red and blue, that allows photosynthesis, which means you're going to get lunch today. Because I can tell you what, a lot of, well, there's no one, but if you want a planet in another place, there are no plants to eat because you're just not getting photosynthesis taking place. And remember this, our sun is a very regular, consistent performer. Very regular, consistent performer. Scientists have worked out in the last 2,000 years, its output of energy in 2,000 years, two millennia, has varied by 0.1 to 0.2 of a percent. 0.1 to 0.2 of a percent. That's pretty good. So we've got the right type of galaxy. We're in the right place within that galaxy. We have the right type of sun. But let's think about the order of planets in our solar system. And our next best friend after the sun on planet Earth is Jupiter, this big gas giant. The thing to note about Jupiter is that it has a very regular orbit. Let's have a look at our planetary system and the order of the planets. We've got the sun, this is not to scale, of course. Then we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and then Jupiter and Saturn, and then a couple of beautiful blue planets after that. But I want to concentrate on these other ones. You see Jupiter in here. Jupiter has a very regular orbit. It is, is quite a bit larger than Earth in mass. It's, three, it's got 300 times our mass. Now, this is significant because if Jupiter at 300 times our mass had an irregular orbit, it would pull Earth out of its habitable zone, this nice circle around the sun. So the fact that Jupiter does this is very cool for us, very cool. Because if you look at other planetary systems that astronomers have discovered, a lot of these big planets are in highly irregular orbits, or, or I should say elliptical orbits, which means that they, they come close to the sun, then they go far away. If Jupiter was doing that in our solar system, Earth would be all over the show, and there would be no life. The other thing to realize about Jupiter is that some scientists say that Jupiter acts as a giant vacuum cleaner, collecting, because of its large mass, meteorites, asteroids that would otherwise pummel Earth. So we have a great friend in Jupiter, ladies and gentlemen. The next time you think about Jupiter, you might want to say thank you. Um, if, you, if it ever crosses your mind, but Jupiter's a pretty good place. Good, we're in a very good neighborhood. So we've got our right galaxy, we're in the right place, the right sun, we've got this fantastic order of planets which protect us, but we also have, of course, we're in this Goldilocks zone. You'll know the story about Goldilocks and the three bears, which is really a little story about how kids should not go into strangers' homes, <laughs> which is actually pretty good advice. But the story's kind of fun anyway. You know, Goldilocks goes into the house and she goes into the kitchen and there's these bowls of porridge and one's, that's Papa Bear's porridge and it's too hot, too hot. And then down here is the, is the, is the Mama Bear porridge and, and that's, that's too cold, too cold. And then we have the Baby Bear's porridge. <laughs> it's just right, 
<laughs> yeah, it's just right. This porridge is pretty good, boys and girls. And starts tucking into it. Do you know what astronomers say? They say that Earth is in a just right, or what they call a Goldilocks zone. It's called our local habitable zone. Let's look at this. We're not too close to the sun, and we're not too far away. Do you know, if we were just one percentage point further away from the sun, scientists tell us that we would have runaway glaciation. That means our whole planet would just be covered in glaciers. If we were five percentage points closer to the sun, we would have runaway greenhouse effect. And we know this, ladies and gentlemen, not just because scientists say they've made a guess and a calculation, because they've looked at the planets that are around us. Venus is one planet closer to the sun than us. Do you know what its average daily temperature is? They never cover this in the weather, do they, on TV One? But the average daily temperature, the daily temperature today on the planet Venus is 400 degrees Celsius. It's balmy. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit warm. You will need those stubbies and a bit of swim and a bit of sunblock. It's warm on Venus. Mars is just one planet further away from the sun. Its average daily temperature is minus 63 degrees Celsius. But planet Earth finds itself in its Goldilocks zone. <laughs> and you know what our average daily temperature here is on Earth? 15 degrees. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm staying right here. You can go to Mars if you like, <laughs> but Earth is not a bad place to be. We're in this fantastic Goldilocks zone. We also have not just right galaxy, right place, right sun, right order of planets, and we're in this perfect Goldilocks zone, but we also have a terrific moon, a terrific moon, not a space station, ladies and gentlemen, but a terrific moon. Do you know that compared to the other moons in our solar system, ours is unusual in proportion to the planet it orbits? If you look at the moons that are around Jupiter, the moons that are around uh, Saturn or Mars, they are so much smaller than the planet that they orbit. Our moon is 27, 27% the size of Earth. It's about 1.2% of our mass. Now, in 1993, a discovery was made that Carl Sagan knew nothing about because he was long gone, and that is that the moon, because of its perfect proximity to us and its mass and size, keeps our axial tilt very, very stable. I don't know if you know this, but our planet is on an axial tilt around which it rotates. So this actual tilt of some 23 degrees stays consistent, not by chance, not by luck, but by the fact we have this large moon next to us that stabilizes it. Scientists tell us that if we did not, if we did not have that moon right where it is, that over time our actual tilt will ver would vary by 90 degrees. 90 degrees. That would mean if this is the North Pole and this is the South Pole, that the North Pole would end up in Hawaii and the South Pole would end up in Samoa. If the moon ever goes, make sure you bought real estate in the South Pole because it's going to be worth a lot more in the future. <laughs> but as long as the moon's there, you might as well forget it, ladies and gentlemen. It's just not really good unless you're down at McMurdo Basin and you are a scientist who likes the cold. 
it's not that great. And of course, the moon is so important in creating tides. And I don't know if you know this, and this is not just for surfers, ladies and gentlemen, but the moon creates 60% of the tides we experience on this planet. The sun produces the other 40%. And you know what that does? Because we have tides, that influences the Earth's temperature, the currents. And on top of that, tides take minerals off the land into the sea that allows sea life to exist. Incredible kind of combination of features all coming together. The last one I want to look at is something that you've probably never even thought of and some of you will never heard of. It's our electromagnetic field. An electromagnetic field. At the core of the earth, we think is filled with lots of liquid iron. And that iron moving around creates electromagnetic fields, an EMP field. And it creates what's known as the magnetosphere. Let's look at an artist's representation of this at the center of the earth and then what it does to the solar winds that are sending particles towards earth. You see, the magnetosphere causes the particles that travel on the solar wind, even though we've got a great sun, and I think I've painted it in very positive light, the only reason we can do that is because we actually have a magnetosphere that protects us from some of the nasty things that do come from our sun, these particles. It causes the particles to move around the earth and bypass us. And it protects our atmosphere and the surface of the earth and your and my human bodies. This is an umbrella that shields us from violent winds that would otherwise wreak havoc on our planet and your smartphone. Without this magnetosphere, ladies and gentlemen, you can kiss your smartphones goodbye. That's probably actually a positive. And think about the planet Venus. You see, Venus lost all its atmosphere Astronomers tell us because it's got no magnetosphere. The solar winds, it's like a sandblaster, just pummeling and pummeling constantly, day and night, second by second, stripping away any atmosphere that might have ever been there, just gone because of this no magnetosphere. Think about Mars. Let's look at Mars itself. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to ask you something. Can you see an insect? Can you see a blade of grass? Can you see a tree? <laughs> Can you see megafauna? Can you see birds? Can you see reptiles? Remember that picture of the moon we looked at just previously? What was there? A blade of grass, a tree, animals, birds, fish, nothing. What you're looking at, ladies and gentlemen, is what the solar system looks like and what these rare earth scientists tell us is what our Milky Way galaxy probably looks like elsewhere. That earth is in this unique, privileged place. How likely is that? Just think about this for a second. I'd be interested in going to Mars. But the idea of living there for any extended period of time, I think you'd get cabin fever real quick. I think you'd get cabin fever going there. The fact that you couldn't open the door and go outside and walk around with beautiful air to breathe, a sun that's mediated by a magnetosphere and protects us, a perfect place, seems divinely created to sustain and support human and animal life of all kinds. 
Let's look at what life looks like on Earth compared to the barrenness of Mars, the moon, and elsewhere. Well, there's a little bit of a difference when you and I take it for granted every day of our life. So common and ubiquitous is complex life to us. And we just think it's the norm. And these scientists say there's a possibility we may be it. In 1966, Carl Sagan argued that the criteria for a life-permitting planet was that it just have the right type of star and our planet be the right distance from that star. Today, scientists realize that this was woefully inadequate. Astronomers specializing in the field have now accumulated 200, 200 parameters that need to exist simultaneously for there to be a planet like ours with this kind of life. 200 altogether. Now, we may have some statisticians here today, and those people have already started to calculate what that might mean for the possibility of life elsewhere. It may just be in Hollywood. Each parameter alone is not particularly impressive, but when you combine them together, it makes the life Likelihood of Earth li an Earth-like planet, by chance, simply impossible. And the probability of a planet like Earth existing with these 200 parameters is, uh, around 200, is one chance in 10 to the power 99. One chance in 10 to the power 99. You say, is that a big number, Adam? It's more money than you have lost behind your couch. <laughs> it's more money than you have in your bank account. It's more money than the richest person on this planet's ever had. It's 10 with 99 zeros after it. You say, how big is that number? Well, we know there are a maximum of around 10 to the 23 planets in the universe. So by chance alone, there should not be any planets capable of supporting life. That includes Earth. Not a one. Not a skerrick. Nothing. So by chance, there should be none. You know, when Carl Sagan came up with this thing about life being ubiquitous and everywhere, they started a program called the Search for Extraterrestrial Life. And they set up these vast kind of radio um, arrays, telescopes for seeing if they could hear life. And they thought that it wouldn't be long and they would hear signals with, from the Milky Way galaxy. Why? Because Carl Sagan said there would be life everywhere. And guess what they've heard over the last 50 to 60 years from outer space, ladies and gentlemen. They've heard what happens when you turn your radio off channel. It's called static. There's nothing there. For 50 years, we have been listening with the best ears that we have, and we've heard butt kiss. Nothing. There is nothing going on, ladies and gentlemen. We've heard nothing. And you know what this has meant? It's meant that the people who said that life was going to be everywhere and this mediocrity principle was right, listen to what Peter Schenkel said. He was writing for the Skeptical Inquirer in 2006. And this is what he said about the changes in science. He said, in light of the new findings and insights, it seems appropriate to put excessive euphoria to rest. We should quietly admit that the early estimates may not be tenable. No kidding. All right, what are the three conclusions we can come from this? And this is serious. The first is this, that we should look after this planet. <laughs> Just, this is crazy talk. 
that we're going to populate some other planet, some other star, you know, light years away from us. This is it. God's commandment to us in the book of Genesis to tend the garden is to tend this planet. This is it. Secondly, aliens are really only in movies. And then finally, the impossibility of such a privileged planet like Earth coming into existence by chance opens the door, I would argue, for divine providence. If it's that implausible, statistically, scientifically, how did we get here? Doesn't that open the door to divine providence? Listen to what John Lennox said. He's a mathematician at Oxford University. He said, the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains credibility as the best explanation of why we are here. And I love what King David had to say, an astronomer of amateur abilities, but divinely inspired in the book of Psalms. He had this to say. He said, the heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. Day and night, they keep on telling about God. Without a sound or a word, silent in the skies, their message reaches out to all the world. How much more true is that today with all we know about astronomy and the universe and our galaxy than it was even in the time of King David? Time magazine asked in 1996, is God dead? Well, I think the answer is emphatically no. The realm of science is showing the fingerprints of God across the universe. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.